To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries, where you can find photos of the Galset Rocket Trio and links to our other free podcasts, The Griffith Park Murder Mystery and Alien L.A. Welcome back to the Los Angeles Mysteries radio program. On our fourth episode of The Rocketeer and the Magician comes perhaps the darkest chapter in the mysterious life of Jack Parsons, whose untimely death might have been the result of a tragic accident, a suicide, homicide, or even a government conspiracy. After selling his share of the Jet Propulsion Lab to partner Frank Molina and forfeiting what could have ended up a career with NASA, Jack commits all of his energy to the parsonage on Orange Grove and his experiments with the dark side of magic. Now a full-time occultist, he dives into Aleister Crowley's writings and grows particularly attached to a novel of his, The Moon Child, wherein Crowley describes the ceremonial process of parenting the Antichrist. This becomes Jack's primary focus. He must first conjure a young woman, a vessel, what is known in Thelema as an elemental mate, and then manifest in her the spirit of Babylon from the Book of Revelation. A little out there? Well, hang on, because after some steamy sex magic, they're giving birth to a little devil. But when a new member blusters his way into the lodge, Jack's love life and new grand plan all come into question. Act four, the captain. A letter from the great beast, Alistair Crowley. Dear Jack, as an elder brother and true friend, I hope that you will think everything over very carefully and make up your mind to continue to bear the great responsibility and deserve the great honor which is yours. After initially refusing, out of loyalty to Wilfred T. Smith, Jack eventually accepts his title as Deacon of the Agape Lodge, and with a growing membership of alternative thinkers, comes even more drug use and sex parties. At one point, Wilfred and Helen return to the parsonage for a brief time to officially begin divorce proceedings with Jack. This throws the lodge into further disarray. So, Parsons offers his ex $2,000 if he ever sells the house on Orange Grove plus $500 cash, 10% of any earnings from the new engineering company he plans to start, and Wilfred and Helen stay in the coach house out back until they manage to find somewhere else to live. Crowley sends a letter. Have I got to explain to everybody all over again that from the point of view of the order and of every member in it, Smith is dead. Out from under the moderating hand of Wilfred Smith, Jack had begun dressing more in dark robes and encouraging the practice of black magic among the congregants. 
Much of the temple's old guard is dead or gone. So he takes out ads for renters. Only bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or other exotic types need apply for rooms. Any mundane souls will be ceremoniously ejected. And just as Jack wills, every last room in the parsonage is rented to a different kind of eccentric. And a new chapter opens up in the order. Most beloved father, about three months ago, I met Captain L. Ron Hubbard, a writer and explorer of whom I had known of some time. He is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, is honest and intelligent, and we have become great friends. This is the story of how Jack Parsons exploded. A self-taught chemist, rocket innovator, and co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Labs, who finds his nights dedicated to strange body meetings and black magic. His odd life and mysterious death are investigated over the course of the next five episodes. Today, having swapped his rocket team for his lodge family and Helen for Betty, Jack looks to fill the void left by his dear friend, Wilfred Smith. So, Jack builds a close bond with the untamable L. Ron Hubbard. This is a cult LA. Jack met L. Ron Hubbard a few years prior at the LA Science Fantasy Society, and the men had even mingled at the lodge once before. But the captain has recently moved into the parsonage outright, and appears to be the newest addition to their colorful congregation. He is the most Thelemic person I have ever met, and is in complete accord with our own principles. He is also interested in establishing the new Eon. It should be noted, many of the specifics of Hubbard's early life are presented differently by different sources, including the captain himself. The religious organization he comes to father has its own interpretation of their founder's early life, often discounting what Hubbard's friends, family, and others remember. At this point in his life, L. Ron Hubbard has been married and separated, lived in Guam, Montana, and DC, some say China and India too. He served in the Navy during World War II and is a prolific science fiction and mystery writer. Though not everyone takes to the bombastic man, the two spend the days reading, writing, discussing magic, and plain old palling around. Jack is enthralled by his stories of adventure, his passion for non-traditional thought, and his mesmerizing sway over the women in the lodge. Betty and Jack have maintained a strong bond, but it's clear the young woman arouses excitement in nearly every tenant. And though they do sleep around, Jack and Betty appear inseparable. 
One evening, after moving the furniture out from the center of the living room, Jack stands with Hubbard. The two suit up, grab some foils, and begin a fencing match. Betty watches from the corner of the room. Neither of the swordsmen are masked, and they both keep slipping on the rugs. Betty narrows her eyes. Jack catches a glimpse of her gaze through the dim light. He offers the young girl his sword. She whisks it away, pouncing on the unsuspecting Hubbard, causing onlookers to think they're about to witness a play fight turn deadly. But the wily Hubbard recoils and teasingly taps her on the nose with the end of his foil. And to everyone watching, the tension is undeniable. Although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affections to him. I think I have made a great gain, and as Betty and I are the best of friends, there is little loss. I cared for her deeply, but I have no desire to control her emotions, and I can, I hope, control my own. Let our actions not be out of regret, pity, malice, envy, jealousy, weariness, hate, or sorrow. Jealousy is obviously in plain breach of the law of Thelema. There shall be no property in human flesh. Jack does his best to control the natural feelings of hurt and betrayal that arise while watching his closest friend and partner make out on the couch, passionately and publicly. But soon, things grow hostile. There are no more rocket engines to distract him. His wife has left. His mistress no longer lets him near her bed. So Parsons leans into the one facet of his life that is yet to abandon him. Black magic. Ever since his childhood deal with the devil, Jack had always maintained an interest in darker rituals and kept calling for the Lodge to perform more tangible magic, casting spells, holding seances, manipulating reality, and summoning demons. One December morning, Lodge members wake to hear what seems to be the sound of someone extremely sick or dying. As the tenants move out into the halls of the parsonage, they share bewildered glances and head toward the source of the sound. The group find themselves outside of Jack's door. Through a small crack, they see a sliver of a robe and now recognize he's chanting. When they push through the entryway, the group is startled. Every wicked symbol and accessory imaginable dresses the room. His arms outstretched, facing a small altar. Jack stands in black robes, encircled by a large pentagram. Certain he is attempting to summon a devil to take care of Hubbard, 
the lodgers silently slink back to their rooms. Actually, his goal is to summon an elemental mate, what he believes will be his perfect sexual and magical companion. In December of 1945, I performed certain operations to obtain an elemental mate. Over the course of the next three months, a drug-addled Jack Parsons anoints daggers and draws pentagram after pentagram after pentagram in the air, while mumbling bizarre, lilting gibberish, then occasionally reciting, Dear thou me, for I am the angel of Paperosoranophorus. This is thy true name, handed down to the prophets of Israel. He caps off the seances with perhaps the most important step in manifesting his elemental. He must distribute life seed upon the sacred slates. Jack jerks off on the tablets. I need a magical partner. I have many experiments in mind. As Jack begins the banishing ritual to close off the openings to the spirit world that he's created, a sudden windstorm tears onto the property and all across Pasadena. Parsons writes to Crowley, informing him of the outcome. I have been extremely careful and conscientious in this ritual, lending all my will and my scientific training to its precision and preparation. Yet nothing seems to have happened. The windstorm is very interesting, but that's not what I asked for. Ah, I am particularly interested in what you have written to me about the elemental, because for some little while past, I have been endeavoring to intervene personally in this matter on your behalf. I would, however, have you recall Eliphas Levi's aphorism. The love of the magus for such beings is insensate and may destroy him. He starts enacting the ritual twice a day. The effects are experienced by more than just Jack. Tenants begin noticing strange happenings in and around the property. Members report dark spirits trespassing on the third floor. And the home's old wooden paneling is believed to be possessed by something alien and inimical. Terrified, the Lodge members conduct daily banishing rituals to clear the psychic atmosphere. Crowley disapproves of the new direction that Jack is taking the Lodge. Jack is a bit like a marshmallow sundae. He does what the last person to talk to him tells him. He is, moreover, too ready to emphasize the sexual side of life. Science, art, philosophy, and the like are our prime care. But Jack continues his sorcery. Often in the presence of Hubbard, who Parsons sees as a powerful sensitive, that same week, the lights in 1003 Orange Grove suddenly cut out. The power is dead.
Hubbard, lights a candle in the kitchen, while Jack feels his way through the house. Ah! I have been struck strongly on the right shoulder. Once Jack finds Hubbard, they each witness floating seven feet high in the kitchen, a brownish yellow light. Parsons is terrified and rushes away into his bedroom. He removes a sword from his wall and storms back to the kitchen. Jack lights tobacco and sulfur and waving his blade in the air, performs a banishing ritual. The light begins to fade and float off into the grand library where Jack pursues it. Drawing pentagrams in the air with his sword, until it completely vanishes. Jack checks on Hubbard. He notes that the fantasy writer's right arm appears paralyzed. It remains that way the rest of the evening. And now even Crowley works to dissuade Jack from this new dark path. I don't like it all what you say about witchcraft. All this black magic stuff is 75% nonsense. The rest, plain dirt. There's not even any point to it. I know witchcraft is mostly nonsense, except where it is a blind. But I'm also nauseated by Christian and theosophical guff about the good and the true, that I prefer the appearance of evil. <laughs> So Jack turns to the one person who had always shown as much nerve as he had, his childhood savior, his business partner, his best friend, Ed Foreman. Just as they had in their rocket days, the boys thumbed to the back of the dark magic tomes, flipping to the most complex spells first. Perhaps because the mechanically-minded Foreman really doesn't believe in all that mystical crap. Ed is still Jack's fearless brother in sorcery. Late one night, after the two boys wrap up a long and exhausting black mass, Ed makes his way through the silent hallways and back to his room. Suddenly, the house begins to viciously shake. Ed peers out the window and sees a gaggle of horrifying banshees careening around the building. Their piercing cries erupt in his ears. He scrambles down the stairs, checking to see if anyone saw anything, felt anything, heard anything. They hadn't. Ed is finished fooling around with evil forces. The Mojave Desert, January 18th, 1946. Beneath an intersection of two long black power lines, each vanishing into the horizon. Jack stands with Hubbard, 
surrounded by near nothingness and the pink and orange glow of sunset washing over them. The men stand in silence, but their moment of meditation is interrupted when Jack suddenly bolts upright, turning to Hubbard. It is done. In absolute certainty that the operation was accomplished, I returned home and found a young woman answering the requirements waiting for me. Fiery and subtle, determined and obstinate, sincere and perverse, with extraordinary personality and intelligence. The 23-year-old standing outside the lodge introduces herself as Candy. Her real name is Marjorie, but everyone in the world of art and fashion design will come to know her as Cameron. Bright red hair and lips and bold blue eyes. She is the precise embodiment of Jack's elemental mate, or what he calls the Scarlet Woman. Marjorie Cameron cares little to none about Jack's occult interests, but happily goes along with the drug-fueled sex rituals in the desert. Meanwhile, Jack's correspondence with Crowley becomes more erratic. Glory, I cry, glory unto the beast and unto Babylon, and hail to the crowned and conquering child. It seems to me that there is a danger of your sensitiveness upsetting your balance. Any experience that comes your way, you have a tendency to overestimate. On February 27th, my magical partner went east for a visit, and on February 28th, I went back to the Mojave, invoking Babylon. During this invocation, the presence of the goddess came upon me, and I was commanded to write the following communication. Yea, it is even I, Babylon, and I shall be free. Am I thy village queen? And thou a sophomore, that thou shouldst have thy nose in my buttocks. It is I, Babylon, ye fools, and this my book that my adept prepares is the Book of Babylon. These brand new magical instructions are Jack Parsons' greatest contribution to the esoteric movement. The intention behind the incantation is derived from a 1917 Crowley novel, as are its methods. In his book, the protagonist plans to advance the human race by ritually impregnating a woman with an otherworldly being known as the Moonchild. Jack's plan is to father the Moonchild with his scarlet woman, Cameron. Together, they will call forth the Thelemic Messiah and forever change the world. To this I am pledged, 
that the work of the beast 666 shall be fulfilled, and the way for the coming of Babylon be made open, and I shall not cease or rest until these things are accomplished. With his elemental, Cameron, always absent and frankly disinterested in magic, Jack finds himself performing the initial rites of the ceremony, anointing daggers, preparing tablets, drawing pentagrams, smashing images of Pan, with the help of the scribe Hubbard, and Betty close by on the sidelines. The scribe had been away about a week and knew nothing of my invocations of Babylon. On the night of March 2nd, he returned and described a vision he had that evening of a savage and beautiful woman riding naked on a great cat-like beast. We prepared magically for this communication, constructing a temple at the altar. He was robed in white and I in black, hooded with the cup and dagger. We set an automatic recorder to transcribe any audible occurrences. And at approximately 8 p.m., he began to dictate. These are the preparations. Green, gold cloth, food for the beast, upon a hidden platter, back of the altar. Disclose only when the doors are bolted. She destroys with a glance. She may take thy soul. She feeds upon the death of men. The scribe, now pale and sweating, rested a while. In the spring of 1946, having been overwhelmed by his occult practices and likely his drug and alcohol use, Jack feels a need to regain touch with reality. He steps down from his position as the deacon of the lodge and sells the parsonage on Orange Grove for $25,000, immediately giving $2,000 to his ex-wife Helen, as promised. But soon, Jack's growing attachment to Hubbard uneases many members of the lodge, and these concerns find their way across the Atlantic to the paternal Crowley. Being as sensitive as you are, it behooves you to be more on your guard than would be the case with the majority of people. Although Ron has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. We are pooling our resources in a partnership that will act as a limited company to control our business ventures. Hubbard butters up Jack with a business proposal, a real quick way to get cash. The ex-Navy captain talks Jack into pooling their savings together in order to flip East Coast yachts on the West Coast for a hefty profit. The scheme would be, the captain takes the money to Miami, purchases a yacht, and sails it back through the Panama Canal. Jack forks over the lion's share of his savings, more than $20,000, combines it with Hubbard's $1,100, and waves goodbye to the captain and Betty, his second love. Again, 
next time on our final episode. We go out with a bang and cover Jack's attempts at the Moonchild, his federal charges of espionage, and we look into the details of the Rocketeer's sudden and unusual death. We'll quickly recap the story to this point and set you up to ponder what secrets could still be hiding in a cult LA. Written, directed, and voiced by John E. Marino, with additional voices performed by Michelle Miller. Along with autobiographies, George Pendel's Strange Angel and Sex and Rockets by John Carter were invaluable resources. Music, courtesy of archive.org. Theme song by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries.